there are still almost a billion people incurring financial hardship every year because when they have to pay for accessing health services. Well, we don't know exactly yet the full impact of the pandemic on universal health coverage. We are doing it right now, but um, anecdotal evidence suggests that reversal of some of the health service coverage gains has happened and pandemic-induced poverty increase may have also increased financial hardship. So in short, there is a lot to do. Hello and welcome to Contain This. I'm Jane Pepperell, Senior Health Advisor for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of country throughout Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. We recognise the continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to elders past and present. In this episode, I'm joined by a panel of experts from the World Bank to discuss the Universal Health Coverage, or UHC, agenda in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Joining me today are Thomas Palu, Advisor on Global Coordination based in Geneva, Switzerland. Aparna Somanathan, Practice Manager for Health, Nutrition and Population in East Asia and the Pacific based in Sydney, Australia. Wayne Irava, Health Specialist currently based in Honiara in the Solomon Islands. And Chindavan Vongsali, Health Specialist, who joins us from Vientiane in Laos. We explore the current state of UHC in Southeast Asia and the Pacific post-pandemic and what the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted about the intersection between global health security and UHC. We also discuss how the World Bank is working with partners like DFAT to help strengthen health systems through the Advanced UHC Multi-Donor Trust Fund and how gender equality is being addressed in this context. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm Thomas Palu. Uh, I'm the advisor in global coordination in World Bank's uh, health, nutrition and population global practice based in Geneva, where the global health is. Hi, and I'm Aparna Somanathan. I'm the practice manager for health, nutrition and population for the East Asia Pacific region of the World Bank. I'm based in Sydney, Australia. Very nice to be here. Thank you, Jane, for inviting us. Hi, good morning, good afternoon. My name is Tinda Wan Wongsali. I'm the health specialist we are based in Laos, Vientiane. Uh, uh, very nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Hello, everyone. My name is Wayne Rava. I'm a health specialist, largely working uh, in the Pacific Island countries, and uh, I'm currently based here in Honiara in the Solomon Islands. So thank you, everyone, and welcome. We're so looking forward to your various perspectives on universal health coverage, or UHC. But first, let's set the scene by actually asking, what is UHC? And let me ask that of you, Tomas. Uh, well, universal health coverage means that everyone receives quality health service when and where they need them and without incurring financial hardship when doing so. You want universal health coverage also has a very strong equity dimension reflected as leaving no one behind. Uh, it is also one of the targets uh, for the Sustainable Development Goal number three, that is about health and well-being. And in fact, uh, universal health coverage is important for achieving most of other uh, Sustainable uh, Development Goal for health targets as well. Just from the World Bank perspective, we see universal health coverage as, uh, as a key for investing into health and human capital uh, to help societies to develop and prosper and also help them to eliminate uh, absolute poverty. 
as uh, for example healthcare costs is among reasons people fall into poverty and stay there in world bank we are jointly with who tracking progress towards universal health coverage um, and the latest official figures are still uh, before pandemic uh, but they say that the world was making some progress uh, uh, towards uh, uh, better health service coverage but uh, with far too slow a pace to reach the target and on preventing financial hardship unfortunately we have not made progress uh, uh, and there are still almost a billion people uh, incurring financial hardship uh, every year uh, because uh, when they have to pay for accessing health services well we don't know exactly yet the full impact of the pandemic on universal health coverage we are doing it right now uh, um, but um, anecdotal evidence suggests that reversal uh, of some of the health service coverage gains has happened and pandemic induced poverty increase may have also increased financial hardship so in short there is a lot to do in 2019 at the united nations general assembly un member states uh, issued political declaration where they committed to accelerate progress towards UHG. And next year, 2023, they will take stock on progress. It will be very different global context post-pandemic and at the time of uh, several overlapping crises. Thank you, Tomas, for that introduction and, and for contextualizing UHC for us. Um, I think it's really important to note what you said, that UHC is not only about essential health services, but also financial protection for people to access the services that they need. Um, so, Aparna, in, in the Pacific and Southeast Asia regions where the Australian Development Programme is most engaged and where World Bank is also very much engaged, what is the level of political commitment to progressing UHC and how is it being framed? And, and does the UHC agenda look different across those two regions? Thank you, Jane. Those are great questions. In Southeast Asia, it would be fair to say that political commitment to UHC over the last 20 years has been up and down. Historically, public expenditures on health and social services, more broadly, have been low in Southeast Asia, which would signal relatively low public commitment to UHC. However, in the 2000s, a period of economic growth in the region, many governments made explicit commitments to progress towards universal health coverage. And examples of that include Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia. The commitments were accompanied by ambitious policy commitments, as well as increases in public expenditures on health. But it didn't necessarily mean there were better services available to everyone in all of these countries. Then, during COVID, most countries in Southeast Asia did prioritize health in their government budgets. But that priority was given to COVID, the COVID response itself often at the expense of other priorities. And now, given the bleak economic growth prospects, our projections of public health spending are not all that optimistic. As published in the recent World Bank report, Double Shock, Double Recovery, we find that without significant public commitments to health, many Southeast Asian countries may well see a reversal of important UHC gains made over the past decade or so. Turning to the Pacific, in the Pacific, governments have consistently allocated large shares of government spending to health. UHC commitments in the Pacific are not as explicit as they are in Southeast Asia, 
but publicly financed and publicly delivered services are the norms and imply universality. But even in the Pacific, weak economic growth prospects and projected declines in government spending imply that health expenditures will see cuts in, in future years. So sustaining high levels of political commitment to health will be critical for ensuring that past gains are not lost. And just on, on the main differences on, on what UHC looks like in, in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, I'd like to quickly highlight three dimensions in which the UHC agenda looks different in these two parts of our region. One, as I've already touched on, is the explicit versus implicit commitments to UHC. In Southeast Asia, commitments to the UHC are made explicit through high-level political commitments to achieve UHC. In the Pacific, it's an implicit commitment through very high levels of public financing and delivery of public health services. A second difference is in relation to out-of-pocket payments for health. Almost all Southeast Asian countries rely quite a lot on out-of-pocket financing for health, an inevitable consequence of low public spending on health. This also means that Southeast Asian populations see a lot of financial hardship due to high out-of-pocket payments. Historically, Malaysia has been an exception to this, and now increasingly Thailand as well. In the Pacific, on the other hand, out-of-pocket payments tend to be minimal given high public spending. A third distinction is on private health care, private provision of health care. There's quite a lot of private health care provision in Southeast Asia. And as Southeast Asian countries undertake UHC reforms, they need to also consider how to contract these private sector providers and monitor the performance of these providers. Private sector provision does not always mean high quality health care. Thank you, Aparna. I think that really highlights such a mixed picture in terms of both political and practical commitment to UHC. And um, Tumas, I know you earlier sort of said progress hasn't always been as hoped. Um, so I've just been to, to dive a little bit more into progress and challenges. And Wayne, I know that you're based in the Pacific region. So I'd be really interested to have some of your thoughts and perspectives on progress and challenges on UHC. Thanks. Thanks uh, very much, Jane. Um, yes, so, so let me talk uh, first about progress. We don't have UHC index scores for, for post-pandemic. However, you know, our reading of, of um, writings and, and most predictions seem to indicate that UHC may have worsened because of COVID-19. I guess one of the reasons were, was that a lot of effort was directed towards COVID-19 preparedness and response efforts, but these came at the expense of reduced efforts in other areas. What are some of the challenges? And I would like to maybe just mention three. In the Pacific Islands, one of the biggest challenges is dispersed islands giving rise to isolated populations, which really makes the, the logistics of health service delivery and the implementation of public health programs very challenging. You know, often these isolated populations, they are much smaller um, and they can often be forgotten, uh, you know, relative to the heavily populated urban centers. But if the UHC agenda is that no one is left behind, then these isolated persons must also be reached. But given the, the geographical dispersion, the logistics and the costs to reaching them are just so much higher, putting added strain on health budgets. 
We saw this in the COVID-19 vaccine rollouts, where people in these areas or these outer islands were in fact the last to be reached when it came to vaccination. The second challenge, I, I think, um, on the path to universal health coverage is, is human resources for health and the limitations around that. And, and, and I think it's not just about a lack of numbers, but in some areas, I think it's also a lack of skills. The right number of health workers, the right mix of health workers, and the right distribution is critical if efforts to achieve UHC are to be successful. And the third challenge I, I would just like to highlight is health information. Access to reliable health information is really core to health sector improvement. We cannot manage our progress on the path to UHC if we cannot reliably measure it. Health information helps inform us and tells us where we're doing well and where we need to improve. So we can then manage how we allocate resources across the various sectors of the health sector. You know, in the Pacific Islands, there are many health information systems. They have the ability to disaggregate data to a more granular level than what we currently see presented. But it's not quite happening. We need data disaggregated by gender. We need data by age. We need data by geographical regions within the country. We need data by ethnicity. We need data by socioeconomic status, etc. This will help us target the health interventions where the needs are greatest and help us progress you know, much better than what we are doing now on the path to universal health coverage. So many interesting issues there, Wayne. Thank you. And um, I mean, just thinking about one of them, and that's um, COVID. And as with so many other issues, it has clearly set back the UHC agenda but maybe also shone a light on some of the health sector issues that really needed attention. So just um, thinking about global health priorities with both health security now and UHC writ large, that for me raises the interesting question of the intersections between the two. Um, and I wonder, Thomas, if you have any perspectives on that. Uh, I do. Uh, and globally, we do as well. Uh, universal health coverage and uh, health emergency preparedness uh, are often referred as uh, as the two sides of the same coin. Um, being protected uh, and prepared against infectious disease outbreaks uh, should be the most universal health coverage there is. And it's not only within countries, uh, but also across countries, uh, regionally and, uh, and globally. Uh, we do know that the weakest link, the weakest community in the country or the weakest country in region or globally can determine the tipping point between a small localized outbreak uh, and pandemic. Universal health coverage and uh, underlying uh, health systems uh, play uh, really an outsized role in health, health emergency preparedness. The primary healthcare services is the first line of defense. Uh, for detecting something unusual happening uh, with people's health. And uh, as uh, uh, Wayne said, also uh, for gathering data for surveillance, um, the frontline health services play important role in testing and treatment, and also for continuation of uh, other essential uh, services uh, during crisis. 
So the universal access to vaccines, tests, and therapeutics in pandemics is, is, is very much about universal health coverage, leaving no one behind. And now, having experienced the pandemic, and, uh, and well, it, it, has it has really underscored the importance of health systems in pandemic response and preparedness. And learning from these lessons and uh, building back better towards more agile and resilient health systems uh, that are able to search, uh, to accommodate increased demand, reconfigure itself themselves and reorganize resources would be very much integral uh, to the strengthening health systems for universal health coverage. So the linkages, interlinkages are many. And really, they are the two sides of the same coin. Thank you, Thomas. Very interesting um, to hear about the sort of the intersections and the synergies um, that we need to build on between the two. And thinking thinking about how to get UHC back on track and progressing again, I'd really like to talk more about how best the likes of the World Bank and development partners such as DFAT can support UHC in the regions. And I suspect that you all have a variety of views on that, but maybe I'll turn first to Aparna for some thoughts on that. Thank you, Jay. UHC is key to achieving the World Bank Group's twin goals of ending extreme poverty and increasing equity and shared prosperity. And as such, it's, a dri it's the driving force behind all of the World Bank Group's health and nutrition investments across the world, including in this region. So the bank supports UHC in two ways. One is through our lending, the other is through knowledge and advisory services. With respect to the lending, um, in Cambodia, Laos, Papua New Guinea, to name a few examples, the bank's investment project financing supports health system strengthening towards pr promoting universal health coverage. Another kind of lending, in Indonesia and Samoa, the World Bank's program for results finance essentially a share of the government's overall health program, and the financing is linked directly to the achievement of, of key results in the program. And then in several, another kind of lending, development policy project financing, in several Pacific islands, including Samoa, Tonga, and Tuvalu, the bank's development project financing or budget support operations finance key reforms, such as taxes on tobacco and sugar sweetened beverages. And then there are the advisory services and analytics. So we also say that we're a knowledge bank and we'll, we support the generation and use of evidence and analysis that's needed to promote better policies for universal health coverage. Then turning to development partners like DFAT, I think what the, what the experience of the last few years of working really closely with DFAT in this region has shown us is that partners like DFAT can help leverage the financing provided by multilaterals like the bank. And they do this in several ways. One is by supporting and promoting greater knowledge generation and sharing of lessons learned across countries. Another is, for instance, through the Advanced UHC Trust Fund, DFAT has, has increasingly used UHC as an important platform for DFAT's own investments in healthcare. And again, I think Thomas will, will talk a bit more about this later. So I might stop there for now and see if Wayne would like to add anything Thanks, Aparna. Maybe I can just uh, mention two examples, one from the project operations and then one from the 
analytic and advisory services. So on the first one, with regards to our operations, you know, um, I mentioned earlier one of the challenges about dispersed islands and um, isolated populations. Well, in, in Kiribati, we have the um, a health system strengthening project that has a, a large investment component um, that is um, directed or targeted towards the outer island health facilities. Now, um, part of the package is not just about upgrading some of these, um, the infrastructure of these facilities, but it also involves equipping these facilities. It includes training of these outer island staff. Um, there's the, um, the activity on increasing the connectivity between the outer islands and the, the central hospitals on, on the bigger islands. And there's also um, an investment in, in um, procuring a sea ambulance for the country. The objective of, of this operation was really to strengthen health service delivery in the outer islands. And in, in doing that, you know, give them access to health services, but also to lower the costs that were associated with unnecessary domestic patient referrals that would come from the outer islands um, to, to, to the main um hospital in Tarawa and i think this is this is an example of i guess a project that uh, that is trying to address universal health coverage and another example um i think from the analytic and advisory services is is some work that we're doing in solomons and it's it's to do with the the allocation of resources in solomons you know during the annual health budgeting process there was always the question of how can we better distribute the public funding that we get across the 10 different provinces? The question was not whether the amount was sufficient. No, it was with the amount given, how do we equitably and confidently say that we've done an equitable job of distributing this across the many needs of the provinces? So our analytical work um, with the Ministry of Health and working with them was to help, you know, come up with a formula that they could use so they could better allocate the minimum resources they have um, across the provinces rather than using, you know, historical budgets year after year to inform resource distribution. The objective was to ensure equitable resource allocation so this could improve health coverage across the different provinces in Solomon Islands. Thank you, Apana and Wayne. Um, let's talk a little bit more now about the partnership between World Bank and DFAT on UHC. And you touched on it earlier um, in referring to the Advanced UHC Trust Fund. I'm keen to talk about that a little bit more. It was established between us back in 2015 um, and for DFAT, it's a very important and valued instrument for working with and through the World Bank on UHC. But um, I wondered, Tumas, if you could sort of give us a summary of, of that partnership, a little bit about its objectives, maybe some highlights. I'm also interested to hear to what extent it's an innovative way of working around UHC. Well, thanks, Jane. This uh, multi-donor trust fund, uh, Advanced UHC, or Advanced for Uni Advancing Universal Health Coverage, that is supported uh, by DFAT, uh, but also uh, contributed by uh, Gavi Global Fund uh, and Gates uh, found, uh, 
Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This uh, trust fund aims to support lower middle income countries to uh, make progress towards UHC, just to put it in short. And doing so through uh, improving uh, the use of uh, financial, human and other resources for more effective, equitable and sustainable health services and for strengthening financial protection. It takes on uh, the equity dimension of universal health coverage uh, by recognizing the significance of gender uh, inequality and so also uh, actively uh, seeks to address gender equity issues uh, on the path towards universal health coverage. And it has uh, spurned uh, really several innovations in the ways of working. Uh, first, uh, the advanced UHC was ahead of times to use a broader health systems approach to look at sustainability challenges uh, and options for uh, health programs that depended on uh, external financing. It pioneered a new analytical instrument, uh, health financing system assessment, that opened our broader perspectives to financial and programmatic sustainability. This was first used in Indonesia and uh, later on uh, in many other countries. Uh, second, the Advanced UHC uh, Trust Fund. It has uh, today, by to date, uh, already leveraged about $1.8 billion of World Bank funding uh, to support countries. Uh, and as well as co-financing from Global Fund, GFF, uh, which is Global Financing Facility, Gavi, uh, the Korean, the KFW, which is a Korean Development Assistance, uh, the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank, Japan and Gates Foundation. So it's been really catalytic in uh, helping to mobilize uh, resources uh, uh, to support countries uh, in their path towards UHC. Third, uh, it has uh, supported some innovative blended financing modalities, including the first uh, World Bank operation globally to be co-financed by the Global Fund under the co-financing framework agreement uh, between the World Bank and Global Fund. And this uh, operation uh, is being implemented in Lao BDR, and uh, I think Chindavan may talk a little bit more about it. But this operation really demonstrates how integrated health system reforms uh, can deliver uh, towards uh, progress towards universal health coverage. Um, fourth, uh, it has put uh, gender more firmly into mainstream of health systems, uh, strengthening and uh, UHC operations uh, in the World Bank. It has done so in Laos, Cambodia, Papua New Guinea, Vietnam. And it has introduced some really operational innovations, such as uh, Gender Equity and Innovation Fund in Lao PDR. And again, uh, Jindavan, who is actually based in Lao, can talk more about it and will. Uh, and finally, and fifth, uh, throughout its existence, uh, the Advanced UHC Trust Funds uh, has uh, supported knowledge exchange in the region that bring together countries as well as development partners uh, active in the region to align understanding and share experience and evidence on what works and how to advance UHG uh, in countries in, East, in Asia Pacific region. Um, I was just going to follow up with, um, uh, with a specific example from Indonesia, uh, but just listening to um, Thomas maybe realize that you know, catalytic, I think, is the important word when I think about AUHC. Um, and the Indonesian example is, is a very good one for that. 
uh, where DFAT's long partnership with the World Bank has led to extensive policy dialogue that's really catalyzed greater government attention towards priority health programs and towards better financing for these programs. So Thomas mentioned the health financing system assessment in Indonesia, for instance. So this H health financing system assessment, or HFSA as we call it, has led to much improved um, uh, evidence base or evidence for policy dialogue on a whole range of issues from primary care to health insurance reforms, integration of programs, the interoperability of information systems, and so on. And over the years, also with support from the government's uh, MySphere program supported by the World Bank, has led to a really strong foundation for the current health system transformation agenda that the, the current Minister of Health is, is really uh, pushing forward with. And today, also, I should note, the government of Indonesia is preparing a major TB project with the World Bank and Global Fund Financing, which addresses TB's challenge, the, the challenge of TB in Indonesia, but taking a very UHC-focused approach. And it's that early analytical work that has helped the government implement these reforms and push the agenda forward. Thank you, Tomas and Aparna, for that. And um, Tomas, I was really pleased to hear you mention gender. Uh, as we've talked, we've touched on e equity and um, leaving no one behind in the context of UHC. And so I did want to ask a final question on gender equality. Um, gender remains a key priority for Australia's development programme. And as we know, there are significant gender-related constraints to both supply and demand of essential health services, and therefore to UHC. So I was just interested in hearing a little bit more about how the advanced UHC trust fund goes about addressing gender constraints. Um, and Chindavan, I wondered if you could please help us with that one. Thank you, Jane. Um, let me uh, firstly also talk about the genders uh, as the priority for the World banks as well. You know, gender equality is also very important for the bank programs. And men and women must have equal power to shape their own life and contribute to the prosperity of their own family and community country will not be able to achieve and make the commitment to USC unless they are championing equal participation of women and girls. So turning to into the USC task fund is very important uh, a tools as it's playing an important role in helping us expand our knowledge of gender constraints to USC and enhance our engagement around empowerment of women, particularly adolescent girls. Understanding and quantifying challenges faced by girls and women in the broadest context and at the community level improves targeting. Contribution through the USC Trust Fund to the bank, um, the World Bank have focused the poverty and the team working in the health, nutrition, and population conducting analysis that look beyond national average and assist our clients intervene among segments of the population and people living in the area of the highest needs. This is very important for setting the targets and have to be combined with the measure that address the hurdle faced by women in the poorest countries to achieve those targets. I just would like to give a concrete example in Laos. The gender assessment conducted in 2020 had contributed to increase awareness and understanding on gender inequality and health equity inequity in the countries. 
the assessment results have really informed the designing of our current health operation, which is we call the health and nutrition service assess projects. The project has targeted the ethnic women, girls, and children living in the hard-to-reach areas, where under five stunting prevalence is high, uh, approximately 40 to 45 percent higher than the national average of 33 percent, and of course, the low coverage of maternal and child health services is uh, is remain an unfinished agenda. Notably on the immunization, family planning, antenatal and postnatal care. So this really helps to understand how the project is uh, need to be better targeted to the most uh, vulnerable population in the countries. And I would like to touch upon a bit on, on the points that uh, Thomas mentioned already on the Gender Innovation Fund. This is uh, the, the thing that we are trying um, uh, in Laos uh, for a year and a half now um, because we want to really listen to what's happening at the local levels and what is the local solution that being proposed by local community. I can give a concrete examples on, uh, on two health centers that we visited. One health center have uh, midwife who are speak the same languages of the community. And that is make a lot of difference because uh, the service utilization, for example, the ANC and delivery at the health facility is higher than the other health center that we visited where the, the health center doesn't have the midwife and most of their staff are volunteer staff and not well-trained. Uh, on the to deliver the services to the community, so this is scary that I see the differences. And uh, lastly, on the local solution, it's very important when we are visiting the field level and we observe what happening at the field level, and uh, we should bring back to discuss with the officials. Uh, uh, level, particularly at the district level, where they are closer to the health centre and the community level to address those issues. I think it's clear that addressing gender constraints and other equality challenges has to go hand in hand with our overall efforts on UHC. So thank you, Shandava, for sharing those experiences with us. And indeed, thank you all for sharing your thoughts and experiences today. It's been a fascinating conversation on universal health coverage. There are so many different avenues that we could have gone down. So let me just close by thanking you all very much for having this conversation with me today. You've been listening to a panel discussion about universal health coverage in Southeast Asia and the Pacific and how the World Bank is supporting progress towards UHC in the region. We discussed how UHC compares in Southeast Asia and the Pacific in terms of political commitment, progress and challenges, and the extent to which the Advanced UHC Multi-Donor Trust Fund is an innovative way of progressing UHC. We heard examples from countries such as Indonesia, Laos and the Solomon Islands. Thanks for your company. I'm Jane Pepperell. Contain This aims to bring you fresh insights, analyses and updates on what is shaping the future of global health in our region. We look forward to having your company on the next episode. 
Containers is produced by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. You can follow us on Twitter at Centre Health Sec.